Well, hello, uh, friends, brothers, and sisters. I feel like I've got to know quite a lot of you already, of course, over the course of the forum. Uh, but for those who don't know me, I'm Peter S. Williams, and here's a giant blow-up of my tiny little business card here. Uh, you can take a business card at the end of the session, uh, or you can uh, take a screenshot or a note down on your iPads or whatever, some info there. Uh, there's my official title, my Twitter handle, my uh, personal email for your eyes only, and uh, my website address. My website will give you access to information about my uh, books, it'll give you some free articles, it'll give you access to my free podcast and to my YouTube channel uh, that, as I mentioned the other day, as well as um, occasionally putting my own video material on there, I also um, curate a lot of uh, YouTube playlists on different uh, apologetic and philosophical uh, topics. Uh, so I hope you will find through peterswilliams.com uh, a lot of uh, useful resources uh, for your own uh, ministryism that you can share around. Uh, last year, the post forum, I did a, a, a post forum workshop on this topic of uh, understanding the times. Uh, a pre-modern meditation on the modernist roots of postmodernism. It's like one of those really old-fashioned books that has a really long subtitle to it. Uh, but I will unpack these terms as we go, so do not be uh, intimidated. Uh, and uh, they asked me to uh, redo this material this year as a pre-forum seminar, and now I've been asked to present uh, a, a shortened, cut-down version uh, in the, the, the hour time slot that we have together here. So I've had to chop out a lot of material, and I will go faster through some of the material that I do have to present than I would do in the usual situation that I've been presenting this material in. And in a sense, I'm kind of doing two jobs. I will both be presenting to you in bare, in bare outline uh, an argument that I present through uh, what is usually a sort of three-hour seminar, uh, but I will also be sort of uh, showing you the workings, as it were. Think of this as like the, the Lloyds of London building version of this material, where all of the workings of the building are on the outside for you to see. And I want to show you the workings in terms of what I'm doing in terms of communication and uh, rhetoric, uh, to use that term. Uh, so I'm not just sharing with you an argument, uh, but a, uh, a method of presentation, as it were, a way of teaching and trying to get people to understand things. You had a background reading material, and I'm sort of going to assume that you've read that, but to take pity on you, knowing how much the forum gives you beforehand and so on, I'm not going to assume that you've read that. So um, here is uh, a key idea uh, that you uh, need to know. And I think uh, this is something that in my own research I've uh, sort of stumbled across and uh, have found very, very useful and uh, very applicable to a number of different areas uh, from thinking about uh, what the topic obviously is, spirituality, <laughs> But thinking what is Christian spirituality, what are other spiritualities, what is the nature of apologetics, and I've written and published material on apologetics in 3D, uh, as I call it, thinking about film studies, uh, thinking now I'm writing material on this 
looking at uh, what is worship and liturgy and the role of, the, of preaching within liturgy in spiritual formation and things. So I think of a spirituality in generic, general terms as a, a way of life, a way of relating to reality. Uh, it aims to be a, a virtuous, integrative way of life. I'll come back to those. Uh, but it's a way of relating to reality via your worldview, your assumptions and belief about reality, uh, your attitudes, uh, your your feelings, but also your choices, your commitments to things, and your subsequent behaviour and actions. Uh, for those from a Baptist tradition, three points beginning with the same letter, it, it, you can think of spirituality... Thank you. Aha! Uh -huh. Spirituality as the combination of your head and your heart and your hands... And, of course, uh, this may, uh, structure may bring to mind various biblical passages uh, and things that Jesus said drawing upon uh, Deuteronomy and so on, but I don't have time to go into that here. Talking about uh, in, in 3D, uh, if spirituality is the combination of your head and heart and hands as you relate to reality, spiritualities are communicated through the three traditional elements of classical rhetoric that uh, not only folks like Aristotle talked about, uh, but interestingly enough, folks like St. Paul in the Bible talk about these very three same elements of rhetoric. Paul obviously knew uh, his classical education. So uh, your head... Uh, well, here we traditionally think in rhetorical terms of arguments, of logic, of the logos... Uh, think of the beginning of John's Gospel. John uh, appropriates this Greek term, logos. Uh, reason, rationality is how we communicate our ideas, our assumptions, our thinking. And we want to judge those things at this level by the traditional transcendental value of truth. The question, is that true or not? But at the level of the heart, this is communicated through pathos. Uh, through uh, aesthetics in terms of communication, you might say, uh, through, uh, through art, music, and so on. And we judge uh, the heart of a spirituality uh, in terms of the transcendental value of beauty. And our hands, our action, our behavior uh, is judged uh, by uh, the, the ethos of the presenter. Uh, you, are, you are weighing up my credibility uh, my uh, consistency or lack of consistency. Uh, do I walk the walk as well as talk the talk? Am I a shyster of a salesman? Uh, or uh, do I seem a reliable kind of fellow? And all of the, you're, you're making these judgments. Uh, those are formed on uh, all sorts of things. But principally, of course, you see it through my behavior. And you're judging me against the standard, the transcendental standard of is that action, is those behaviours of the spirituality good or not? Uh, so we have this head, heart, hands spirituality, the three elements of classical rhetoric of logos, pathos and ethos, and the standards that we're judging these things by of truth and beauty and goodness, all of which I would argue are objective beauty as much as goodness, as much as truth, but that takes us into a whole other conference. So... 
We have uh, rhetoric. And I was so pleased to see the programme that we've been working our way through this week. Uh, we've had, uh, we just had in the previous session, an excellent example of rational argumentation, a rational critique of a viewpoint through logos. Uh, yesterday, uh, we had a talk about our ethos as apologists, as we looked at uh, virtue apologetics. Uh, and uh, right at the beginning uh, was Caldon's talk on superheroes and so on. Uh, and my talk today, uh, we're putting an emphasis on pathos. Not that any one of those talks only had one of those elements in. It's a matter of degree of emphasis because, as I say, these elements are interrelated to one another. So here I'm going to be summarising a sort of uh, what you might have heard of in terms of a cultural apologetic very much in the tradition of folks like uh, Francis Schaeffer, who's been mentioned before. And whilst I'm offering examples of how we can uh, deliberatively use aesthetics, pathos, in persuasive evangelism or apologetics. Robert Mulholland says that life itself is a process of spiritual development. The only choice we have is whether the growth moves us towards wholeness in Christ or towards an increasingly dehumanized and destructive mode of being. That is kind of the Christian viewpoint on this matter, I think. So you can have spiritual development where, where internalizing your spirituality, a particular spirituality, leads to a virtuous integration of your personhood. It brings wholeness, it brings shalom, uh, to use that Hebrew term. But also... Spiritualities can be more or less uh, pulling you apart from the inside out. You can have spiritual devolution the more that you internalize a spiritual tradition. You have an internalization leading to the disintegration of your personality and your personhood. As St. Augustine said, my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure and beauty and truth not in him, in God, but in myself and his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain and confusion and error. And that motivated him to go in search of a better way of life, a better spirituality, and eventually led him, of course, uh, to Christianity and the God uh, who uh, is such that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Now, if there's spirituality, that's not just an individualistic thing. Spiritualities are shared, they're a communal thing, and actually they have an effect upon uh, culture. We can talk about the cultural level of a shared spirituality together with its, its characteristic traditions of art and craft. And like spiritualities, therefore, cultures can be more or less spiritually integrative or disintegrative. Now, I would think that a, a truly Christian culture would be integrative, and I think that a modernist rejection of God, and that's the, the key foundation stone of, of modernism as I'm defining it, the rejection of God is disintegrative upon the, the consequent spirituality and culture that flows from that worldview shift. Uh, and let me put it like this. I wouldn't going to argue that 
the more consistent one is in trying to, to live out that rejection of God, the more consistently one tries to be with that rejection of God, the deeper one sinks into postmodernism, which at its ultimate and logical, in a sense, conclusion is identical with nihilism. So let me use this image of uh, reflecting our worldview to ourselves as we look into the mirror and ask a key worldview question. Once upon a time, we looked into the pre-modern worldview and we asked the question, mirror, mirror on the wall, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, who is the fairest of them all? And the pre-modern mirror said something like this, God. God is the fairest of them all. Indeed, he's the maximally beautiful being who created the cosmos. I use that word advisedly. Think of uh, Cosmo magazine about beauty and aesthetics uh, and harmony. And it's, it's a cosmos, not, not a chaos that God has created. God created a cosmos and made humanity in his own image only a little lower than the angels. A page there from the uh, illuminated manuscript of the book of Kells. Do, do you know this painting? Yeah? Uh, I'm not going to tell you who, who painted it uh, if you don't know it, but I want you to, to be looking and, and thinking about this painting and what this painting tells you about the spirituality of whoever the artist behind it was. Such a culture, I think, we can see from artefacts such as this assumed and pointed to the existence of objective, transcendent, transcendental. They go beyond the individual categories of the university as we chop life into little artificial bits to study it. But, you know, in history, you need truth just as much as you do in theology or in biology. These transcendental objective values of truth and goodness and beauty. I stake the claim this is a beautiful painting. And if you say, no, it isn't, you are wrong. <laughs> you are, of course, allowed to say, I don't get it. That's not my cup of tea. I don't understand it. Help me to come to appreciate this artistic tradition or that artistic tradition. But I think that is beautiful. And I think it says something about the spirituality of whoever the artist was. Now, in a sense, you can see this and you can say, oh, it's a picture of a person pointing up. But doesn't this communicate more to you than, oh, someone's painted a picture of a person pointing up? Yeah? What is this, and this is not a rhetorical question, what is this painting communicating to you, uh, thinking in terms of the, the, the spirituality that is communicated here? What is it saying to you? <coughs> Meaning and happiness from above. Meaning and happiness from above. Yeah, there's a bit of a smile on the face there. I'm feeling and beauty, it is beautiful. So meaning and happiness and beauty. Transcendence. Transcendence, because of the, the pointing upwards. So that meaning and happiness and beauty is linked to the transcendent reality that's being pointed to. 
Yeah, we, we just intuitively get this in art, that something of, of, our, of our whole spirituality is being communicated. Now would be a good point for me to tell you that, A, this is a painting by Leonardo da Vinci, and B, it's a painting of St. John the Baptist. And with that background information, particularly the title of the painting, you can now probably see that Leonardo is, is saying much more detailed things about the one who stepped into the, the light of revelation to point to the one who is the light of the world. That he, he is not the light, but he is pointing to the light and all of this. Within such a worldview, the biblical background gives us a very balanced and realistic view of human nature. For example, here's a passage from Shakespeare's Hamlet. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, nor woman neither. And so Hamlet is expressing the greatness of God. What is man that you are mindful of him? The greatness and the tragedy of man. Think architecturally. Let me introduce you to Salisbury Cathedral, as the Americans say. Uh, Salisbury Cathedral uh, from England. A Gothic cathedral with the tallest spire in Europe. Uh, well, at least whilst we remain part of the European Union, it's the tallest spire in the European Union as well. Um, <laughs> it's a whole other issue. But this is a, this is a magnificent and beautiful uh, and a very impressive building, especially when you think, um, actually, here are the people. Notice the size of the people next to the small entrance door at the front there. Take in the size of this and the fact that these medieval people built this using stone and hand tools and wood and rope. And that they dedicated hundreds and hundreds of years to completing this building to the state that we see it in now. And indeed, it continues to be a living worship, of, a center of worship, and to support uh, the arts. And they've got a new wonderful font that I don't have time to show you that is actually uh, a, uh, a spring in a cross-cruciform shape with water. The water pours out of the corners of the font, talking about the, the waters of life welling up within you as you are baptized into Christ. Here is the IT hub the information technology hub of the cathedral. We have here the sound system. It's a stereophonic sound system because we have one part of the choir here and one part of the choir there. Sometimes they would put little groups of choristers up high in the rafters so they could do 5.1 surround sound. <laughs> and the music that this choir would sing, again, expresses something of the... Think of that word cosmos that I used earlier, and just listen to this brief uh, snatch of choral music. 
lovely, harmonious, beautiful music singing the praises of God with the voice of man made in his image. As you look at the LCD digital display colour screens called stained glass windows, particularly in a culture where many people couldn't read, this was a good way of communicating the message visually. So the church has always traditionally been at the cutting edge of communication and information technology. Yeah? Because that was cutting edge at the time. Um, Vishal Mangaladi, the Indian Christian philosopher, uh, notes something that ties in with the talk we had earlier in our network. He says, the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology, and we had a talk about the, the influence of the Reformation uh, Protestant theology upon that in particular, but there was this medieval background as well, nurtured by the church, that the Bible, in that sense, created and underpinned the scientific outlook. And here's another example from Salisbury Cathedral. Uh, dating from roughly 1386, I don't know how you can have roughly and then a very specific date, you know, Tuesday <laughs> afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, uh, 14th century, let's say, it's claimed to be the oldest working clock in the world. So here again is the church supporting new cutting-edge technology, uh, science, and so on. Now I'd like to, to talk uh, about two uh, fundamental questions, as well as this question of who is the fairest of them all, uh, the question that we uh, philosophers like to call ontology and epistemology, but which commonsensical folks would prefer to uh, talk about in terms of um, what sort of things are there and how do we know, which is, you know, straightforward. That's why philosophers use the long, complicated terms, just to uh, keep it in the guild, you see. So let me give you this example of coffee. <laughs> Here we have coffee. Uh, coffee is one of the types of things that exist. Some people would say uh, coffee uh, is the only thing uh, that really matters uh, that these conferences, but no, there are plenty of things, and coffee is amongst them, and we know that via the empirical senses. Uh, we could uh, say, in a sense, we know that scientifically. Um, but also I would uh, point out that there is our pleasure. Another thing that exists is our pleasure in drinking the coffee. And that, on, at least on the face of it, seems to be an entirely different sort of category of thing. It doesn't seem to be the same kind of thing at all. And for example, how do we, how do we know about our pleasure in drinking the coffee? Well, it doesn't seem to be through our empirical senses at all. We know it through introspection. I, I, I know it through having the experience of the pleasure that I get when I drink the coffee, not by looking down a microscope or doing some sort of uh, scientific test or just looking at it or touching it or anything. I actually have an experience from the first-person viewpoint that I can't share with you. I can tell you about it and try and evoke it and so on, but you don't have my experience of the coffee Whereas all of us can have equal third-person access to the existence of the coffee. Another reason why the coffee and the pleasure seem to be very different kinds of thing. And now, of course, the pre-modern Christian worldview would say, yeah, that, that is right. There are these two different kinds of things. There's the material realm and there is the spiritual, supernatural realm as well. That's uh, one last ex uh, example from the uh, pre-modern worldview. 
or two examples that I have cludged together. <laughs> There's no organic relationship between these, but uh, on the one hand, uh, this painting called Grace Foretold by the Japanese Christian artist Makoto Fujimura. And on the uh, other hand here, the lyrics, and I'll play you the music as well, uh, or some of it, uh, from uh, this track by the British Celtic prog rock band Iona, named after the island, Iona, uh, called An Atmosphere of Miracles. I think this is, uh, whether or not prog rock Celtic music is your cup of tea, uh, this is good poetry, good lyrics, good theology, and uh, good music with a nice guitar solo. So I want you to, to meditate for a few minutes upon this music, these words, and this painting. And I've put them together because I think there is a, I think there is a thematic resonance between them when you start thinking, what is this painting communicating to you? Uh, even though it's very abstract, it still communicates a spirituality to you. So let us just listen to this track. I may have to turn the music down a little bit if it's set too high now. Now, normally, I would get a group of people that I'm doing this with to take time in groups, to share, uh, to feedback, and so on. But I don't have uh, time to do that. But I th hope you can see something about the, again, the balanced view of life, the now and the not yet of salvation, the fact that we suffer but in hope. The fact that we have hope means that we need to have hope, and that means that there are bad things here and now. But the sense that it will be worth it, and the sense that our King, our Lord, is here with us in the midst of that suffering. That God is not remote, but he has become incarnate, he has suffered, and he is with us by his Spirit in our lives here and now. And that same message... Of, of God coming in to rescue uh, the world, to rescue us from uh, the things we need rescuing from, primarily ourselves, of course, uh, is also in uh, Makuto Fujimura's painting here. As the, the heavens are shattered by the inbreaking pouring of the water of life. From the, from the golden reflective heavens where the glory of the Lord comes in and it pours in this water into the dark things of the world and starts bringing, bringing life and greenness out of that darkness. And then one day, culture turned its back on God. And looked into the modernist worldview mirror and asked, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the modernist worldview mirror said something like this. You will all know this story. According to science, which is the only way to know anything, man is the fairest of them all. Although an unverifiable term like fair is just an expression of emotion. The most rational being... Man to have arisen via the blind watcher of neo-Darwinian evolution, a child of mother nature, who will soon come of age and reject the childish superstitions of religion. This is the official narrative of the West. So as atheist Alex Rosenberg asks and answers his own sort of catechism, is there a God? No. What's the nature of reality? What physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? There is none. Why am I here? 
dumb luck? Is there a soul? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything carries on the same as before, except you. <laughs> what is the difference? What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Individual human life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism is true. We've suddenly jumped from modernism into nihilism. They're just opposite ends of the same slope, and sometimes they can come out in one and the same statement. If this seems hard to take as a worldview, as a spirituality, says Rosenberg, there's always Prozac. That is a drug prescribed for people with depressive uh, conditions and so on. Later on in the book, he comes back to this theme and says, what should we scientistic folks do when overcome by, apologies for my pronunciation, Weltschmerz, world weariness. Thank you. <laughs> take two, take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. You get rid of God... You start looking at the world just through science. You just give a material account, a deterministic account of things. And you start getting art that expresses that worldview, like this track by the British band Muse from the album The Second Law. This is their track, Unsustainable, which is one of only two songs that I know about the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> Bonus points afterwards to anyone who can tell me who the other uh, British singer who talks about thermodynamics was. Here we go. Muse, second law. Doesn't that make a profound contrast, those two pieces of music? And by using something like that, you're, you're helping people not just to, to you know, understand some concepts, but to feel what it is like to live within a spirituality to empathise with people who live within a spirituality that's different from them. See, the way in which that tract helped you empathise with thinking, what would it feel like to live within a worldview and a spirituality that said, well, it, you're just in a closed material system and that's it. You're doomed. Ultimately, there is no hope. Everything is just fragmented and angry and frantic and... What are you going to do about it? Those feelings come through. And it gives you an empathy and a longing to help the person who's trapped within that false view of things. But wouldn't playing the Iona track to your non-Christian friends at least give them an inkling of thinking, what might it feel like to exist and move and have my being within a Christian way of looking at things? Nancy Piercy says that the separation of facts, material and scientific, from value is the key to unlocking the history of the Western mind. People always knew there was a distinction between descriptive and normative statements, but they used to think that both kind of statements dealt with questions of truth. And in that sense, questions of fact. But nowadays, modernism erects this divide between value, private, subjective, relative, invented by us humans, and facts, the public, objective, 
discovered by naturalistic, empirical, scientistic science. And hence we have folks like Peter Atkins, the new atheist, uh, saying, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. To which, of course, the comeback question is, oh, that's interesting, which scientific paper shows that that's true? What experiment did you do to discover this? Such scientism is too narrow a view of knowledge. It's open to obvious counterexamples, such as your need to have intuitive knowledge of rational first principles, logic, in order to even do science in the first place, of, of moral principles, of aesthetic principles. If I point to Leonardo da Vinci's St. John the Baptist and say that is beautiful, that seems far more obviously true to me than the philosophy that would deny that. And indeed, the scientific demand that basically turns out to be the demand that in order to count as rational, any and every belief must, it's, must be supported, must be justified by evidence, generates an infinite regress that you can never satisfy. It is a profoundly anti-scientific view of things, as it were. Willie Wilson Holmes' track Blood and Bones is very interesting. He, um, he went around a, an exhibition of um, preserved human cadavers called the Body Works Exhibition. I don't know if any of you have heard of this, the Body Works Exhibition. And uh, clearly he started thinking about, well, what is a human being? And struggling with this. And he wrote a, a song called Blood and Bones in which he, he, he talks about... Um, Standing on the bridge of size, our cash is blown, it's all been spent. In every way we own the rent, we're all washed up with the tide. Um, and the, this repeating chorus of, it seems to me that there's more to this than meets the eye. Something more than just the life we're living. Without a soul, we're nothing more than blood and bones. Uh, and I, again, I don't have time to, to play the music to you, but there's a sort of real desperation, a sort of sense of tragic loss about it. And he's wrestling with it. It seems that there's more, but, but look, science is telling me that I'm nothing more than blood and bones. And at the end of the song, he appropriates the religious language of the requiem and sings, requiem eternum, requiem, requiem, for the death of the view of man. As has been said, once God is dead... Pretty soon after, you realise that man is dead as well, in the, in the traditional sense that we have conceived ourselves. And in such a, a materialistic and scientific understanding of humanity, it's a little wonder that you have uh, the French architect Le Corbusier, uh, the crow, he was nicknamed, uh, who famously called houses machines for living in. Well, if we're just organic machines... And society is just a big collection of organic machines. We want to have a, a scientifically-based society and organise it scientifically and so on. Why not build scientifically correct housing, as it were? Machines for living in. And we get this the, you know, stereotypical, you live in your concrete square and I live in mine. And yet that longing of the human heart and the image of God for some beauty nevertheless seems to creep through. Why is there different colours on this machine for living in, for machines to live in? Do machines really appreciate a nice little bit of colour in their day? 
Let me show you the, the opening scene of the, the Nordic crime uh, series, season one of uh, The Bridge, as it's called in English, in which the, the, the makers use the modernist architecture of the city, particularly at night, to set up a mood in advance of even introducing the crime drama that's going to unfurl in the series. This, this communicates, again, something, I think, of that machines for living in, what is humans. This picture of the city, I think you will agree, is not about community. It doesn't give you warm, fuzzy feelings. It gives you a, a, a feeling of isolation, despite the fact of all these people around you, of, of sort of creeping, slow dread. Uh, the way in which the cinematography and the very sparse music that is used here, I think, is is very good art in terms of its communication of things, but I think the spirituality that is being communicated here is a fascinating series uh, to watch, but not, uh, not for the weak of stomach, let me note that. And then one day we looked into the postmodernist worldview mirror, and we asked who's the fairest of them all, and it was postmodern because we got a slightly different answer. It came like this which is made up of a whole bunch of quotes from postmodernists. Although words only mean whatever they mean to you, I'd say that if I can get my colleagues to let me get away with saying that I'm the fairest of them all, why then I am the fairest of them all. After all, values are merely subjective concepts programmed into the human animal by the blind watchmaker of evolution, which only cares about what works, which doesn't care about truth any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. Why should we care about truth? We must keep faith with Darwin and admit that we know that all we can know is the subjective meaning of our own words. A piece of art by Damien Hirst in the middle there. French philosopher Lyotard famously described postmodernism as incredulity towards meta-narratives. That is, I'm sceptical about any overarching story or narrative you want to give me as a sort of worldview to ground my spirituality in, or my culture in. I'm sceptical of all of those here's how to situate yourself in the worldviews. Of course, this is his... Narrative. And it produces architecture like the M2 building in Tokyo here. In one sense, this is quite fun, isn't it? Interesting to look at. Um, bit weird. Bit kind of, oh, look, it's a Greek column with a Corinthian capital, but it, it's not there to hold anything up. What's the architect saying? Here's a thing that we'll just have it, but there's no purpose for that thing being there. Let's mash old and new together, but we're not striving for any kind of one coherent view or message. Everything is up for grabs. The Rexner Centre for the, the Performing Arts, uh, Ravi Zacharias' story is, is, is lovely. He says, postmodernism tells us there's no such thing as truth or meaning or certainty, 
and he tells the story of, of being driven past this building on his way to a speaking engagement in the States, and his host says that this is America's first postmodern building, and Ravi's like, you know, what's that? What, what on earth is a postmodern building? And the guy says, well, the architect said he designed the building with no design in mind. <laughs> he said, if life is capricious, why should our buildings have any design or meaning? So he has pillars with no purpose, stairways that go nowhere. And Ravi asked, so his argument was, if life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? Yeah. Uh, And Ravi asked, did he do the same with the foundation? (laughs) Did he apply that philosophy to the foundation? And there was silence, because you can see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we like, but fool with the foundation and it'll call your bluff in a hurry. Ideas have consequences, and clearly this postmodern idea that the architect wanted to communicate through his building was one that he couldn't follow through consistently. Indeed, the more consistently that architect was or were to be in following through his postmodern worldview, the less I would want to try stepping inside that building. I don't know about you. Or oh, here's a, another very recent example I, I stumbled across. Um, Damien Hirst's Hydra and Kali. Uh, you can see here uh, in the background there's this, this statue of the many-handed goddess Kali. Uh, not Kali. Kali. Kali, not Kali. Uh, and the Hydra. And here we have uh, the same with uh, lots of barnacles grown all over it as if it's uh, some sort of lost, sunken treasure. Indeed, you can see the, the divers, as they discover the lost, sunken uh, treasure from some long-forgotten past civilization here, that they've clearly you know, discovered this. There's pictures of them finding it under the sea. They've dredged it up, put it on display, and perhaps they've, they've made a copy of it uh, as they think, as the archaeologists think it must originally have looked. Uh, though, of course, this work of art dates from this year. This is, if you like, the fake news version of uh, archaeological discovery uh, as art. Um, All of these separate pieces and the filming with this underwater was all done this year. So, saying you can't really trust. Postmodernism is presented as a radical departure from modernism, often said Grutius, but it is in many ways, modernism gone to seed. Nietzsche said that nihilism represents the, the logical conclusion of our great values and ideas and talked about how once God is dead, trust has been turned to doubt. Well, one sentence definition of postmodernism, trust has been turned to doubt because God is dead. I'm going to skip the parable of the madman. Uh, If you don't know it, do look up online Nietzsche's parable of the madman. It's very hard-hitting. It was Nietzsche who said, why should you pay attention to truth? And started this postmodern trend of doubting the ability of language to give us truth about reality. Uh, We're just locked within our own use of language. Or coming into more modern times, you can see someone like the atheist Thomas Nagel 
arguing that a, an evolutionary naturalism, a materialistic view of the human mind and so on, provides an account of our mental faculties <coughs> that undermines their reliability. And in so doing, undermines itself, becomes inconsistent, soaring off the branch you're sitting on. You see how behind, again, what we've been looking at are still these questions of what is real and how do we know? And indeed, thinking about what Nagel said, how your view of what is real impacts your view of even can you reliably know things. So as Howard Taylor says, postmodernism uses reason to show that reason is invalid. Any system arrived at by reason that then uses reason to invalidate reason must be self-refuting. Nevertheless, postmodernism has a point. Postmodernism is right in saying that there is no room for reason in the modernist atheist worldview. They're right in criticising the modernist for having their cake and wanting to eat it at the same time. So J.P. Morland distinguishes between different grades or depths of postmodernism, if you like. There is a shallow postmodernism that, as William Lane Craig argues, really is nothing but modernism. <coughs> it's subjective about ethics and beauty and religious ideas, but not about science or how you interpret the instructions on how many pills to take from your doctor so that you get cured and not an overdose that will kill you. <coughs> but they will go all postmodern when it comes to wanting to interpret the Bible or other texts or what have you. But there are those, whether or not they can really live with it, they certainly can't consistently live with it, but they claim to believe it, they may try to live it out to one degree or another. Those who deny knowledge is possible, or that there is anything true that we could know in the first place, or that there is anything really there for there to be truth of or about. And as you slide down this scale, you sink deeper into the slough of nihilistic despair. So a pre-modern worldview has God at its centre and that justifies you keeping science and objective purpose and meaning and objective goodness and beauty and truth and all of this. Modernism kicks God out of the circle of its worldview. <coughs> it tends to put the natural world and science, the ontology, the epistemology at the centre there. And of course it wants to hold on to truth, but it denies value. It is a shallow postmodernism. And the, the, the deeper postmodernists say, hang on a minute, you're trying to have your cake and eat it. Because really, when you get rid of God, when you follow it through to the logical conclusion, as it were, then you also have to lose trust in human, re in human use of reason. Uh, in our ability to know a reality beyond our language, and so on. So they also get rid of those epistemological values and go into a deep postmodernism. So the more consistently you try to live out a denial of God, the further you are pushed towards nihilism. And you can resolve that in one of two ways, that this tension in the middle here. Ultimately, you can end up embracing nihilism. Or you can think, maybe well, let's rethink things and turn the clock back. Let's retrace our steps here and bring God back into the picture. 
So there you have, in outline, a sort of cultural apologetic, an argument. There's a logical argument in what I've been saying. But I've been, been illustrating that, looking at the consequences of it existentially, in terms of what it feels like, uh, through uh, aesthetics, through art, through the culture that is married to these spiritualities, in a way that I think helps the, the teaching of the ideas and the grasping of them, um, but also our empathy for those within different spiritualities, and hopefully in terms of reaching out with, with our message, with the gospel, persuasive evangelism and so on, reaching people as the, as the whole holistic people that they are, we know, made in the image of God. Yes, rational, but also, also needing uh, pathos and, and ethos, the virtue of our communication, uh, a communication that reaches them at the level of the heart. Uh, these transcendent values are objective, are linked, and you can get at one through the other. Um, it's not just a matter of, oh, now I'm just talking about feelings. We were having a discussion last night about the difference between feelings and rational intuitions. When I have the rational intuition that the law of non-contradiction is true or that a rainbow is beautiful, it, you can't just dismiss that by saying, oh, that's just your subjective feelings. Now, I have a feeling when I drink a coffee and it's too hot and I go, ow, or I, or I get some, some of that chocolate dessert they serve here and go, mmm, lovely. You know, I have a warm sort of uh, feeling about it. it, it uh, feel nice about it or whatever. But uh, rational intuitions are really, they're communicating information to us, in a sense. You can't just dismiss them as a subjective thing, like a, just, just a feeling. You know, and uh, aesthetics and art... Uh, because they, they embody and communicate these objective transcendent values and so on that interconnect, uh, allow people access to, to truth, to reality, help them, come, help, them, help them come face to face with a reality that they might not otherwise notice if you just try and communicate at uh, the level of here's an argument. I will draw up a stumps there so that we have some time for interaction questions and our uh, filling out of forms and uh, so on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, so rich and interesting and creative. Thank you very much. We have, do not have much time for questions. I think we have to limit it to two questions. So, we just open the floor. Who wants to react or comment or make a question? Number one. I, I have a question. I am curious how um, Leopard, I think you said yeah. uh, metaphysics, there is no meta-narrative. It is meta-narrative. Something pluralist used to say that there is no absolute claim and this is absolute claim. Yeah. My question is, uh, what are, uh, I guess, they, they receive objections to their, like this, that somebody already mm. told them, what, what are their response to this objection? Right, okay, so fascinating question. So I was talking about how 
Lyotard's claim that there are no meta-narratives, of course, is a meta-narrative. The postmodernists claim that you know, uh, there are no absolutes and everything's pluralist is itself an absolute claim. You know, the claim there is no truth is a claim to know the truth, and so on. So they're self-contradictory. Surely they know about this objection. Well, let me give you a concrete example of an instance where I put this objection to a postmodernist English professor I had at Cardiff University many years ago. They had a very postmodern English department at the time, at least. And uh, I read this professor a quote by C.S. Lewis from The Abolition of Man, the end of The Abolition of Man, that basically made the same point. Because it's saying you're claiming to kind of see through everything such that there are no absolutes and, and, and no truth claims that can be made. But that really means you can see nothing because you can make no truth claims because you're, you're undermining your, your claim to be knowing the truth that we cannot know the truth about things. That, that doesn't make sense. So here's what the professor said. He, he, he asked, oh, who, who said that quote? Foolishly, I answered. Uh, uh, these days, I, I, I would have learnt not to, to say, I would say, well, it doesn't matter who says it. It's an argument. I'd like you to respond to the argument, not the person. But I said, yeah, it's C.S. Lewis. And the professor said, oh, well, C.S. Lewis, of course, he was writing at a time just after the war when people were looking for a sense of certainty and security. Uh, and so you can't, you know, really take uh, that seriously. Um, so he just did an ad hominem uh, attack. He didn't, in, didn't engage with that argument. So there are certainly instances where even if you know, a postmodernist knows about the objection, that doesn't mean they're going to reply <laughs> to the objection. <laughs> um, it seems that they just want to talk about something else, uh, to not, not see it. I mean, if he did see it, since, I mean, it's such a clear objection. There's no, nothing worse for your position in philosophy than it being self-contradictory. That is, game over. <laughs> that would mean he'd have to stop saying, you know, um, OK, students, I have uh, published a book, the textbook for the course, which is available down in the student uh, Blackwell's bookshop there. You will need to go and buy the book and read it so that you can understand, through reading my book, how texts have no inherent meaning and don't communicate the, the thoughts of the author and only mean whatever they mean uh, to you. And you can see that's laughable, it's self-contradictory, um, but he's in that position and he's selling the books and, you know. Um, but now I'm indulging in ad hominem, am I? Well, not exactly, because I've already refuted his position. I've, I've addressed the issue logically and now I'm seeking to answer what is the psychological question of... Why would anyone do that? Now, you know, I can't see into his mind. I haven't got him on my psychologist's couch here, and I'm not a psychologist. Um, but from my layman's point of view, uh, that's kind of where uh, my mind grasps for immediately. But, of course, he's an individual, as we were learning the other day. I, I should, if I were in a position, follow up with him uh, on that, press him on it. So don't you see that, that? Why, you know, that didn't address the issue Come on, let's try and get into it. But, but some people, however much you try and press them, they're just going to bend with the wind. You know, kind of, <laughs> let's not engage. Mm, yeah. Okay. So that point that you, you employ that wisdom of knowing when to walk away that we were talking about uh, the other day. 
Um, some people, it just comes a point where you just have to move on. Yeah. Uh, on that point, uh, Alex Rosenberg uh, does take this up in his own book, uh, where he is saying that nihilism does get an uh, unfair reputation. Um, it's really not that bad. And, um, <laughs> well, you, you do have to reduce uh, everything to not meaning anything. And he even says that, well, why should I even write this book uh, since rationality is use useless? And, mm language doesn't mean anything and he simply waves it away with uh, well I need to write something <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, Leif mentions Alex Rosenberg's uh, fascinating and multiply self-contradictory book uh, An Atheist Guide to Reality in which for example to give another example parallel to that he I think very powerfully argues that given the assumption that everything is material it's impossible for there to be such a thing as reference in reality. That, that there can be nothing that is about something else, that refers to something beyond itself. That's kind of almost the opposite of being caused by, to refer to. And he says, if materialism is true, and I think it is, you can't be thinking about anything. Language can't refer. You don't have thoughts about things. We're not thinking about whether or not we can think about things. I'm like, what? Uh, and then elsewhere in the very same book, he says, uh, it is undeniable that you are thinking in, and arguing and thinking about things and so on. And he just seems to not get it somehow. Uh, Count on. Yeah, I, I, I think we need to, uh, to draw this to... Uh, sorry. We'll uh, chat later. Uh, and give Peter a big hand. Thank you.